know Boris Karloff played one of the most effective mummies in monster movie history, so I thought it was appropriate to open this episode of Monster Kid Radio with the song Mamias from the band Los Mortones. It appears on their album Haciendo Pachinchi. You can find them over at losmortones.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for the podcast, Monster Kid Radio, the show that you're listening to right now. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to the show. This is our 151st episode of the podcast, and I have got an interview for you guys and gals. I'm thrilled. You know, when I started podcasting back in 2008, one of the things that I had hoped I'd be able to do is meet some of the people that I look up to, have conversations with these people, and share these conversations with podcast listeners. And that happened this past Saturday. I had the opportunity to meet Sarah Karloff. Boris Karloff's daughter sat down with me in the lobby of the hotel she was staying at when she flew to Oregon to watch the opening night and, well, the following night of the Karloff One Man Play by Randy Bowser. Sarah Karloff was so gracious, so giving of her time. We kind of danced around each other in terms of figuring out what time would work, and she was so accommodating to me. So I am thrilled to share this interview with you guys and gals. Also, I have a review of the play. I saw it that evening. I can't wait to share that with you as well. Before we do that, why don't we talk about the website, though, monsterkidradio.net. Like I said, this is where you're going to find links to the band that is appearing on this show. Again, that's Los Moratones, and you're going to hear that song in its entirety at the end of this episode. You can also find links to our Live 365 internet radio station. This is where you can find music and sounds from classic monster movies from the 30s to the 60s with the occasional bit of music from other... Well, it's all relevant. Go check it out. When you're not listening to Monster Kid Radio, of course. You can also find a link to our Facebook group where conversations are happening with Monster Kid Radio listeners between episodes. We also have a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show. Patreon is an ongoing monthly way for you to help support the podcast. And by supporting the podcast, depending on what level you support it at, well you'll get a reward or two, like a special thanks or a shout-out, like Joseph Perry. He's one of our patrons. He's a writer over at HorrorNews.net. We appreciate your support, Joseph. Also on our website, you're going to find our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our phone number, our voicemail line, is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. So if you have any feedback about anything you've heard on the show in the past or this time around, well, you know how to get a hold of us. I want to get to this interview with Sarah Karloff. So why don't we go ahead and dive into that right after this. Do you believe in ghosts? This is the night when fear and horror walk hand in hand. This is Black Sabbath. Starring the incomparable Boris Karloff, the personable Mark Damon, and lush and lovely women, even though one is from the netherworld, a vampire, a burdelac. Black Sabbath, as ancient as superstition, as modern as the telephone. A nice look with that towel around you. You always did have a beautiful body. Why are you? Who? 
Sabbath. The bare truth about the unbelievable, such as the brilliant beauty of a priceless jewel that holds within the body of a buzzing fly, a vengeful woman's murderous spirit. Only on the seventh night of the seventh full moon can the living see the lifeless undead. I am hungry. Is he man? Or vampire? An adventure into black magic that goes beyond the boundaries of the supernatural. Man's devoted love is welcomed by a woman's deadly lust for his blood. Film productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer horror, the engaging storytelling and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Hammer? Wasn't that an 80s cop show on ABC with David Raish? This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Wait, that was Sledgehammer. 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Mad Monster Party! Starring Boris Karloff and, in order of their appearance, Dracula, Frankenstein, the werewolf, the hunchback, the mummy, Dr. Jekyll, <laughs> and, in order of his disappearance, the invisible man. Also starring Phyllis Diller as the hostess with the least. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> it's a come-as-you-are party that's out of this world. You don't get invited. You get committed. It's a psychedelic scary. To meet the grooviest ghouls of all time. Mad Monster Party! <laughs> Anyone? It's a blast. Yeah. 
I'm sitting here in the lobby of the Grand Hotel in Salem, Oregon. I'm here because later tonight there's a play based on the life of a man that we really enjoy here on the show. It's the Karloff, the one-person play by Randy Bowser. And in town, special guest of the play, horror royalty, a terror film royalty, Sarah Karloff. How are you? I'm just fine, and I'm delighted to be on your show. Well, thank you for agreeing to meet with me. It's, I know it's the morning after the first show. No spoilers, but how was the play last night? It was absolutely remarkable. Randy nailed my father. The information was right on. His performance was superb. I'm still just reeling from it. It was superb in every way. When we had him on the show, he did a little bit of the Boris Karloff voice, and I've been seeing some makeup tests online. The physical presence, did he nail that as well? Yes, he did. When he makes his entrance, I, I was stunned. His walk, his persona, everything was just captivating for me. And your father was a big fan of the theater. He did a lot of work on stage. Do you think he would have appreciated being portrayed on stage? He would have been... So amazed that by the tribute this play, just just that somebody would do a one-man play about him and about his life. My father was such a modest man and so self-effacing. He would say, what's the big deal? And he really would. And, and he would be so flattered and, and so complimented by, by Randy's work and effort and, and the end product. You're kind of self-effacing yourself. I was telling you about how much I love your father's work, and you're like, you do? And I, I love what he does. I, I get the impression, though, based on interviews I've seen with you or read with you, you had a pretty normal childhood growing up with the man. Oh, I did, indeed. And, and my father was very modest, very self-effacing, very grateful for the fact that his career took the turn that it did. I mean, one has to understand he'd been in the business 20 years as a starving actor and became an overnight star after 20 years. You know, Frankenstein was his 81st film, and as he said, hardly anyone saw the first 80. That would be humbling in and of itself. But my father always appreciated and was very grateful for the pivotal difference that Frankenstein made in his life, both personally and professionally. And he was always grateful for the fact that he was able to keep working almost literally up until the day he died. He said he wanted to die with his boots on, and he almost did. He ultimately made almost 170 films. He did an, an, an enormous body of radio work. Uh, he did. Um, he had three television series of his own. He guest starred on all the prominent shows of the day. He did uh, five Broadway plays, Arsenic and Old Lace, Peter Pan. He was nominated for a Tony in The Lark opposite Julie Harris, which was one of the high points in his career. Um, he won a Grammy for The Grinch, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. He made 20-some children's albums, recordings. He, he loved working with children. He had a very wide spectrum in his work, and he was grateful for that. He loved working with children. He always said children got it. They understood that Frankenstein was the uh, victim and not the perpetrator. So he was very fortunate. It just took him a long time to get off the starving actor's role. <laughs> 
an overnight sensation after 20 years. Uh, yeah, exactly. You mentioned television. So I, I kind of want to go there real quick. Thriller was one of the series. The Veil, is that another one of the yeah. series? What was the third? Colonel March. Oh, that's right. Okay. Did he enjoy doing television? Well, in 1949, he moved from California to New York to embrace the new medium of oh. television. Most At that time, most film actors were scared to death of the live television because they, they were accustomed, as was he, to being able to do take one, take two, do it again. And live television, you were on the line right then and there, and whatever you did went out to millions of viewers. And he welcomed the challenge. He understood the exposure be it good or bad, and he did a, a lot of television, and he he enjoyed the challenge, he enjoyed the new audience that it brought to his work, and the new types of of scripts and challenges that, that he was able to meet. And that's probably not a far cry from doing the live theater work, because with theater, I mean, it's, there's no net. That's right. Uh, you know, the immediate gratification or rejection by a lot live audience is a as-you-do-it moment. He was terrified at first when he was asked to do Arsenic and Old Lace by Lindsay and Krauss, and he, he actually refused it at first. And then he said, as long as there are three more important roles in the play than mine, and, <laughs> truly, and uh, when he learned more about what the play was, and he loved the line that he got to deliver, which was, of course, when asked why he killed someone, this particular person, he said it's because they said he looked like Boris Karloff. <laughs> that brought the house down every night. So he, he, my father had a wonderful sense of humor, and that was the turning point that made him make the decision that he would do the play, and it remained one of the longest-running plays on Broadway until, I think, Sound of Music. And it played over 3,000 performances. So he, he did love doing legitimate theater. He did Peter Pan. He loved playing Captain Hook and having all the youngsters oh, come backstage. Yeah. And he did his own makeup. Oh, wow. And um, he, he loved having the kids come backstage and wanting to try on his hook. And uh, he loved um, ha- working with youngsters uh, like the seven uh, lost boys in in Peter Pan, and he loved the fans, the young fans that that came. So that was that was terrific. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, he he adored and respected Julie Harris, and uh, working with her in the Lark was was the pinnacle of of his uh, Broadway work. He just was thrilled to death. And then he did On Borrowed Time. And then he was um, asked to be in the linden tree and was in rehearsals for it. And the, I guess the uh, producer came and said, oh, no, 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 we can't have Karloff. Karloff in the, I don't want that name up on the marquee. It's not that kind of a play. And uh, so the director had to tell my father, I'm so sorry, Boris, but even though we've started rehearsals and everything, we're going to have to find someone to replace you. And my father was so disappointed, and he had to accept the decision the producer made. But he did write the producer a letter and said, I understand your decision, 
but I promise you I would not have eaten the baby at the end of the first act. And the producer found that to be so amusing that he changed his mind, and my father did go ahead and perform in the Linden Tree, unfortunately, at a very short run, and it wasn't because my father ate the baby either. <laughs> that sounds like he had a pretty good sense of humor about what he was. Sense of humor, wonderful sense of humor. Some of my favorite movies that he's done are the ones where you can tell he's having fun, especially when he's working with people like Peter Lorre, that sort of thing. Did that kind of carry on to his home life with you? Was he kind of fun at home as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he had a real lovely sense of humor and a gentle sense of humor, never at anybody else's expense, very often at his own expense. He was a typical English gentleman, lived a very modest life. He just had a warm, gentle English wit, and everybody adored him. When my when my godmother was writing her book, her, her biography, she said almost to a person when she interviewed people who knew him either personally or professionally, they would preface their remarks by saying, Oh, dear Boris. And so she titled the book, Dear Boris. There are a handful of books out there, Dear Boris, one of them. Do you find that most of these books get it right? Do they reach out to you? A couple of them have reached out to me. Of course, my godmother wrote Dear Boris. Scott Nolan wrote a biography on my father, and he had access to some of our family material. But in particular, Stephen Jacobs has written the definitive biographer. He's a British author. And he spent 10 years doing the research for his book, which is Boris Karloff, More Than a Monster. And his book is incredible in its, not only in its research and accuracy, but in its completeness. And it is the scholar's biography, but it is also a wonderful read about a wonderful man, my father. So the title is More Than a Monster. He certainly did more than just play the Frankenstein monster. What are some films out there, or are there any, that you wish maybe got a little bit more attention, some of the non-Frankenstein stuff? Oh, well, I love Targets that he did toward the end of his life with Peter Bogdanovich. It was very timely. Uh, Unfortunately, it's timely today. It was about a sniper. It was released at the time of the Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy assassinations. So it was pulled prematurely from the theaters. But uh, my father played an aging horror film star. Great casting. And Peter uh, wrote it, uh, directed it, and acted in it. And it was his first endeavor of, of any of those assignments. And my father had admired Peter's creativity and his talent and enjoyed him and Roger Corman had 10 minutes of quote unquote Karloff time left over from a from a contract and so Peter was given the assignment of creating a vehicle to use those 10 minutes and so um, the film used more than 10 minutes of Karloff's screen time and my father donated the balance of his time to the film because he was so so enamored and in such admiration of, of Peter's creativity and talent and the film is really a fine film and it's available on DVD now uh, it was shelved for many many years but it's available now I also love 
a comedy of terrors and The Raven with Peter Lorre and Vincent Price and then with Basil Rathbone because those old men had such a good time spoofing their boogeyman images and playing practical jokes on one another on the set and driving Roger Corman crazy, (laughs) which I think was their end goal. (laughs) They really had a good time. And those films are fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'd reached a point in their careers, each one, that they knew each other and enjoyed one another's company, enjoyed working together, and they could just turn their images back on uh, themselves and spoof their, their career, their own careers. And that was great fun for them, and it was great fun for the audiences. Your father loved being British, you know, a lot of tea and cricket, and, you know, he really embraced that. Is there a reason why he never, or was he ever approached about being involved in the Hammer films? Because they were shot in, you know, in that area as well, around some of the same time he lived in the area, didn't he? Um, he went back to New York in 1949, and in 1959, he moved back to England. He was always a British subject. He never became an American citizen. And he was he was inherently British. He was British. And he loved England. He loved the pace of life in, in uh, the English countryside. They had a, a cottage in, in Hampshire and a flat in London. And why he... I, one, I don't know that he wasn't approached... And two, I think he was just out of sync with the Hammer films. He was still working in New York uh, those 10 years, and he was still working in Hollywood those, those 10 years. And I think the Hammer films may have been a bit more graphic True. than he wanted to do or would have chosen to do. And the things he was doing those 10 years were more theater and more television. And then he was under contract for seven Mexican films at that point. And I remember his saying to me that he just signed a contract with, I think, American International for seven Mexican films. And he said, I guess if they have that much confidence in my longevity, I better stick around and fill out the contract. Those movies were pretty much toward the end of his career, um, toward the end of his life. He did the film Curse of the Crimson Altar in England, though before that, which is actually a guilty pleasure of mine. I love watching him and Christopher Lee kind of go at it. Do you have any thoughts on that film? I don't like scary movies. (laughs) I've read that. It's true. So there are some of my father's films I haven't seen. Okay. Uh, Chris Lee and he were good friends. And lived next door to each other in London. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, but that is not on my bucket list. <laughs> I have read that you're not a big fan of the, the horror movies. That Murder, She Wrote, sends you screaming from the room. It, well, it, it, crawling from the crawling. room, really. <laughs> Uh, but you have seen a handful of them. Obviously, you've seen the Frankenstein films. And of the films that you have seen, what would you consider the scariest role your father had? Father. Oh, wow. <laughs> you care to elaborate on that? Well, I mean, he, he was eminently fair, but I never wanted to disappoint him. Oh, okay. That's all. 
What do you think he'd think of how you've handled the legacy at this point? You've really kind of championed keeping the rights in the family and, and really protecting his, his image over the years. Is that something that he would have cared about? Oh, he cared greatly about good taste. Oh, okay. And what was being done with his image was not appropriate, nor was it in good taste. And so my goal was to see that when his persona or his image was used, it was the classic image, and it was not a um, caricature nor a, a generic image uh, that was trying to be sold off to the public as the Karloff classic image. But it's the fans that have perpetuated the legacy. My gratitude goes to the fans, as would my father's gratitude go to the fans. It is they who have perpetuated the longevity of his popularity and the respect with which the fans treat me is only representative of the respect with which they regard my father. It is so rewarding for me and for my family to know how, in what high regard my father is held by his fans. And I get wonderful letters, wonderful emails, wonderful feedback from people of all ages. It's his, the appeal of him... Uh, of his work is multi-generational and it is so enduring and so endearing and with such fondness and such respect it is phenomenal but it's all due to the fans why do you think that is why do you think your father struck such a chord with the fans when some of his other contemporaries maybe didn't have the same longevity i think it reflected who he was as a human being you definitely get that sense in talking with you just now, reading interviews over the years and reading about encounters that other people had with him. You get the sense that he never really let Hollywood kind of take him over, that he was always kind of a, a real person at home. And it, it, I think it really reflects on, I mean, you said the respect that the fans give you is a direct reflection of the fans giving respect to your father. I think that you've done a wonderful job and you deserve some respect on your own. <laughs> I'm I really, I'm nothing, it has nothing to do with me. I'm nothing but a conduit for okay. people who wish they had had an opportunity to meet my father, ask him a question, share a story with him. And the minute I lose sight of that, I better stay home and clean my own oven. I really feel that way. <laughs> Well, I hope that doesn't happen anytime soon. You've been very generous with not just me, but when I go to your website at Karloff.com, I see all the letters and, and a number of emails that you've posted, as well as like a store to people selling material that have used your father's likeness that you've worked out deals with them over the years. What are some of your favorite merchandising opportunities that have come up using your father's likeness? Well, certainly the biography that, that Stephen wrote, and actually anything that people have taken the time to come to me and ask if they could have a license, have permission to do something honoring my father. That is such a compliment to him. And it shows respect for him that they want the stamp of approval of the family. Well, that's something about this play, too, is that it's authorized by you, by the Karloff family. Authorized is a 
too big a word. It's <laughs> I'm I'm just delighted with the tribute this play is paying to my father. Why in the world would I not think it was a wonderful idea? Well, that's a testament to the script. I haven't seen the play yet, so but uh, we were talking pretty glowingly about it before we started recording. Oh, it's this play is is a mega undertaking, and it has come off magnificently. The performance, the material, in every manner of speaking, this play is superb, and it is such a tribute to my father. I was absolutely overwhelmed last night with the content and the quality and and the manner in which it was presented. I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. Are there any other, I don't know, convention appearances or projects that you're going to be involved with down the line? Well, I'm going to a show that's called, and I go every year, called Monster Palooza. It's in Burbank, and it's March 27th to the 29th. It's in the Burbank Marriott. And then every year I do a show called Chiller Theater in beautiful downtown Parsippany. First you have to learn to pronounce it and then to spell it <laughs> and to try to remember which consonant to double. It's in Parsippany, New Jersey. And it has about 20,000 people attended. It's, it's, there's one of everything there. And it's, it's a great fun show. And then I'm doing Wonderfest in Louisville, Kentucky, Memorial Day weekend. And right now, I think that's all I know about. But I'm delighted to be here in Salem for, for this play. Just delighted. What was the first thing that you thought when Randy first approached you about this? I thought, that's a huge undertaking. I wonder what he'll leave out. <laughs> Did he leave anything out that, I don't know, maybe we should be aware of? No, not a thing. Everything's there. Everything that ought to be is there. Excellent. (laughs) Sarah, I'm going to let you go. I want to thank you so much for taking some time with me this morning. It's been a real pleasure and an honor to meet you. Give up the honor. (laughs) (laughs) It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Derek. You heard the interview. You heard what Sarah had to say. Let's go ahead and get into a review of the play right about now. I live in the Portland metro area, and Salem, Oregon is about an hour's drive from Monster Kid Radio headquarters. I wasn't too worried, though. I had been following Randy Bowser's progress on Facebook and on the Kickstarter page, and based on what I'd read and seen, I knew the drive back and forth would be worth it. Now, the Level B Theater Pub is a cozy venue, and I was quite comfortable as I settled in for the show. I had heard earlier from Sarah Karloff that Randy and company had to build onto the existing stage to accommodate the Karloff one-man play, but I couldn't tell. Since the show, I've seen some video online showing the stage extension taking place, and I'm impressed. Not that you need a large stage for this show to work anyway. It's a one-man production, and just like the venue... It's a cozy show. Boris Karloff walks onto stage, and even though we're taken on a tour through Karloff's entire acting life, the conversation is intimate. At times, he's talking directly to the audience, and he really could have been talking to me personally. And at other times, he's interacting with people like Jack Pierce, May Clark, or his family, including daughter Sarah. Now, the storytelling of Karloff is non-linear. It's dreamlike in its structure, floating its audience through Karloff's memories of working on the stage and screen, 
with some bits in between. There are a few props and costume pieces on stage to help illustrate some of his stories, but in all honesty, they're not needed for this Boris Karloff fan. Let me stress, I said they're not needed. But it is a treat to see Karloff don the furry shirt from Son of Frankenstein or put on a wig when he's telling us about the time he played Captain Hook on the stage. So please don't misunderstand me. What I'm hoping I'm communicating here is that I could have sat cross-legged in front of Randy Bowser as Karloff and just listened and watched him perform. And that's a testament to what Randy has done here. As the writer, he's distilling Karloff's life story. While the play's timeline deals mostly with the man's journey from starving actor with the unfortunate addiction of needing three meals a day to his legendary place in entertainment history, Bowser gives us Boris Karloff's, or William Henry Pratt's, roots and clearly gives us a picture of what the man's family life was like from child to husband to father. The writing is impressive, so much so that if I could, I would buy a copy of the script for myself. And you know what else I'd love to bottle up and add to my collection? Randy Bowser's performance. Sarah Karloff said it best when she told me earlier that Randy nailed it. He doesn't do an impersonation. He doesn't intentionally lisp every S sound in his speech, even while joking about it. I've watched enough Karloff movies and seen enough Karloff on television to recognize the man's pacing and speech patterns. And Randy does nail this. And every once in a while, I close my eyes and I can imagine Karloff himself speaking to the audience. I didn't want to keep my eyes closed for too long, though, because then I would have missed some of Bowser's physical performance. When he takes on Karloff as Frankenstein's monster, I believed he was wearing the leg braces Karloff wore while playing that role. And that's to say nothing of what he does with the rest of his body. It's not pantomime. It's not a caricature. It's just acting. And it's good. No, strike that. It's great. Because of the acting, because of the writing, because of the evident passion on behalf of Bowser and everyone who helped him out. Attending this Karloff one-man play has become one of the standout events I attended this year. And this Monster Kid had a very busy year with Monster Bash and all the classic monster film screenings I crashed at multiple theaters last month. Now I want to talk briefly about how the play ended. I loved it. There's such a nice moment, a crescendo-like note that made my heart grow three sizes that night. And then Bowser gave me something to do with that welled-up heart that I'm sure Karloff himself would have appreciated. It ends on a happy note, and a particular song has now been running off and on through my head since the show. Sarah Karloff was in attendance last weekend, and I was nervous for Randy, because Sarah is an important part of the play's story. Several times, Randy's Karloff speaks about or interacts with his daughter, who, in real life, was sitting a few feet from the stage. I didn't need to be nervous for him, though. In fact, it made the experience that much more moving since I had met Sarah earlier in the day for that interview, and she had said so many glowing things about the play. She even joined Randy on stage afterward for a Q&A with the audience. Unfortunately, Sarah will not be at next weekend's shows, but the spirit of Karloff will definitely be there. For a couple of hours, Randy brings Karloff's story to life, and that sound you just heard? It was me going online and buying my ticket for the final performance next Saturday evening. I know it will be worth the drive. On the anniversary of the night they burned Lavinia Morley, many strange and sinister dreams are experienced. But are they dreams? Or are they the signs of the curse of the Crimson Altar? How are these wild parties and an antique dealer investigating witchcraft connected with this house of horrifying secrets. 
Get out. Go while you can. What mysteries live within these ancient walls? Who is Robert Manning looking for? Why is he in danger? When will he find the hidden truth? I am Lavinia, mother of the mysteries, keeper of the black secret. Lavinia's influence has spanned the centuries, maintained her innocence up to the very end. They didn't believe her and burned her at the stake. Many people have died mysteriously, horribly. There's always been a link between those who burn Lavinia and those who die. My brother stayed here, didn't he? My brother Peter. Tell me what happened to him! Curse of the Crimson Altar brings together the two masters of horror. Boris Karloff, Christopher Lee, Mark Eden in his most powerful performance. I know there's something wrong going up in that lodge, and if you're not going to help me, I'm going to do it myself. Barbara Steele as Lavinia, Queen of Terror. Michael Goff as her unwilling slave. And introducing Virginia Wetherell, guest star Rupert Davies, Curse of the Crimson Altar. What ghostly legend was he caught up in? Who was the living link with Lavinia? Why was he tormented by these ghoulish nightmares? Time. When did this frightening fantasy become startling reality? This is a very deep cut. Do you know it looks as though you've been stabbed? I think I was. kidding i am going to the play again i'm going on saturday november 22nd at 8 p.m at the level b theater pub head over to brownpapertickets.com and look up karloff the one person play or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net i would encourage you to go if you're in the area if you can make the time it's ten dollars to see this show and it's amazing so go check it out let them know that monster kid radio sent you and if you are going on saturday look me up i'd love to meet you Big thanks to Sarah Karloff for the interview and Randy Bowser for putting on one heck of a performance and one heck of a play. Coming up on Monster Kid Radio, tomorrow night is a Monster Kid Radio crash at the Joy Cinema here in Tigard, Oregon. They are bringing in Vincent Price's House on Haunted Hill as part of their Weird Wednesday series. It's 9 p.m. It's 21 and over only, and it's free. I will be there. I'll have my recorder. We'll probably bring you some recordings from that evening in the next episode of Monster Kid Radio. But you'll have to come back here in a couple of days to well, find out for sure. In the meantime, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. The opening and closing song was Momias from the band Los Maratones. It's from their album Haciendo Bochinchi. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. You can find them over at their website, which is at losmartinos.bandcamp.com or again, follow the link in the show notes. And before I sign off, big thanks to Scott and Tracy Morris, Rich Chamberlain, and Larry Underwood. They know why. Talk to everybody in a couple of days. Damn.